Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Ian Ward was looking to make a few quid by taking part in a medical trial. A subsequent health check and an MRI led to the discovery of a brain tumour and a life expectancy of five years. This isn't an interview you're going to want to miss because you'll have an idea in your head of what he's going to say, but the reality is a larger-than-life character on a mission to smash as many fundraising world records as he can, or as he says, cure cancer or die trying. I'll also be joined by mindfulness educator and author Orla O'Sullivan to talk about her new book and the importance of introducing wellness tools to children. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, this week was good. The one before in the ever-continuing spinning plates challenge, I kind of leaned into the socialising a little bit. So I heard an expert talking recently about the importance of doing something which makes you feel a little scared or pushing yourself out of your comfort zone or just allowing yourself to do something you know you want to but have been convincing yourself you can't. So I decided that for a little while, every invitation that came my way, I would say yes to. So I accepted a very kind invite that came to the opening night of a musical at the Bordgosh Theatre, Share the Musical. I loved it more than I even imagined I would. What a life and career she had. There was so much to be learned coming back from being down and out and broke many times, selling millions of albums and winning an Oscar. But I diverge from the point It's hardly a scary thing that I had to do, you're probably thinking, unless, I suppose, you don't like Cher's music. But an evening invitation, particularly on a weeknight, will send me into a slight panic because I know it will mean a late night and less energy for the other life endeavours that I have, the other spinning plates. But I went with it, met a friend, had a lovely catch up and a great night. I'm still not really over the joy of large crowds gathering together. I went to another gig the following night with my husband, again, deciding to put the importance of relationships over just a work and early night focus. Then a friend's birthday Friday, out again Saturday, barbecue Sunday, all good stuff, enjoyed every minute. My cup was overflowing and I feel very grateful for all the people in my life. But come Monday, I was feeling run down. So I suppose that's where the listening to your body comes in, doesn't it? The routine returns, the early nights were back, the phone banished from my room, the last two episodes of Ozark parked for a few nights and some dinners cooked from scratch with all the good stuff in there. I've come to accept we can't get it right all of the time, but what we can do is try and figure out what works for us. And then we know what to lean into and out of when we need it. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Orla O'Sullivan is a mindfulness educator, a poet and an award-winning writer focused on developing creative pathways that help children care for themselves, their community and our planet. She's currently International Coordinator of Wake Up Schools, an advisor to the World Happiness Festival and founding member of the Community of Contemplative Education. She's just released a children's book, We Are All Flowers, and she joins me in studio now. Hello, Orla. How are you? I am very well. Thank you so much for having me. What a lovely CV, even as I've spoken about all the different titles you have. And you've had... Quite a colourful career, haven't you? Many different hats. Sure. I Yeah, I'm interested in many different um, areas of work and I've had a lot of opportunity to 
to travel and to um, explore different things. So from like my first proper job was working on Wall Street. I got to curate a private museum in America. Um, I've worked a lot with charities and not-for-profits. I've taught English, everything from um, Beowulf, from Anglo-Saxon English to feminist science fiction. So I have many interests. (laughs) Amazing. And when did mindfulness first come to you on a personal level and then professional? Mm, Yeah, so from when I was... um, from when I was a child, I, I can remember, like, looking back now, there were definitely times where I was mindful. Like, I loved being out on the sea. I loved art. I loved spending time in nature. And as I grew, like, I, you know, did yoga and enjoyed the little breath practices in yoga and noticed that they helped me immediately, like, in a very practical way. So... At those days, you know, Anthony DeMello's awareness was very popular. The Dalai Lama wrote The Art of Happiness, which fascinated me. And then I remember about 24 years ago, opening a book by a man called Thich Nhat Hanh. And I read the first sentence and I was like, oh, I've come home. This makes sense now. OK. And do you remember what that sentence was? Could it be mindfulness is an art <laughs> of coming home to the present moment, something like that. Okay, okay. And it just made immediate sense. And it could be applied in my job, uh, in my personal life, um, in kind of the ethical life that I wanted to live. It just all kind of made sense as pathways of exploring. Before we get into mindfulness a little bit more, you touched on happiness there. And I said that you are an advisor to the World Happiness Festival. And happiness is a a strange term, isn't it, in many ways, because it's so subjective and it seems like it's something we're constantly striving towards. What's the definition of happiness for you? So for me, it is about um, living a life that has meaning, um, where we get to be free to be ourselves and where we can have a sense of thriving in all aspects of our lives. So when we think about happiness, like if we had to write a list of what I think will make me happy, we draw in things like money or a house or a relationship or a particular shaped body. And actually, when we dive down to what makes us happy on a daily basis, it's much more simple things. Um, So happiness has many different ingredients. When I teach children, we say happiness is like ice cream. There are so many different flavors. So there are a lot of different experiential states that when we experience them regularly, they all add up to a life that is meaningful and thriving. So they might be things like um, gratitude, joy, wonder, a feeling of connection or belonging. Um, Hope is really important. Curiosity, um, love. So we have like loads of different states that we just need to kind of water them regularly so that they grow. And that keeps us much safer from loneliness, from isolation, from addictive thinking. And there's peaks and troughs to it as well, aren't there? Um, I've started to favour the word content because it just seems more achievable. It takes the negative striving out of it. Every now and then we're like, oh, my God, I'm so happy But nobody could go around like that all the time or we'd never appreciate those moments. Absolutely. And actually contentment, satisfaction, ease or even relief are also ingredients of happiness. You know, like that feeling when you get in the door with heavy bags that you've been carrying too heavy for too long and you put them down and you have this like "Ah," moment like that's a flavour of happiness. It's really important to remember moments that are then less difficult than what came before. So happiness isn't like a rictus grin of everything being awesome, um, because that's very much to do with external happiness. And they're just kind of luck. A lot of those conditions 
whether we have everything the way we want it, a lot of that is down to luck. Like, for example, something like the weather, random, but it can put us in such a bad mood. So this happiness that we're aiming to cultivate is a much more stable internal state of well-being that is uh, less um, kind of rocked by external. So the challenges of life remain the challenges of life. Stuff goes terribly wrong. We make huge mistakes you know, we fail, people let us down, all of those things still happen. It still rains and we get caught out in it. But we're less um, uh, kind of buffeted backwards and forwards by all of those. So it's almost like if you imagine a wagon wheel, we're more closer to the spoke at the centre of the wheel so that we're simply more stable as things rise and fall and are amazing and are rubbish. (laughs) Oh, you paint such beautiful pictures. I'm still on all of the flavours of happiness in front of me, like in a gorgeous ice cream shop. Um, and, And I really resonate with what you're saying about the spoke. What about mindfulness then? Because I think still for a lot of people, I've covered it so many times here on the programme. And I still think it's something that we we scramble to try and think, what is it? What is it? And there are many different definitions. I do think the name, the words that we use for it, um, doesn't quite sum up the experience of doing mindfulness. So my teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, is credited with introducing the word mindfulness into the English language. He was a Vietnamese Zen master. Martin Luther King nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. He's huge. Time magazine called him the father of mindfulness. And um, and even though we use the word all the time, the way what we're referring to is an energy that we can generate in this moment. And that energy has the ingredients of being open. So you're willing to accept this is what it is, for better or worse. Um, there's an energy of kindness. So you're coming into this moment as a friend to see, because it's an act of courage to come back to yourself. You know, sometimes I'm a really, it's a really easy moment to be me. And I come home to myself and I'm like, oh, this is a great moment. And sometimes it's not so easy to be me. So it's an act of courage to come back and see. So you could call mindfulness bodyfulness. Often we use our body as our core anchor because while your mind is the best time traveler in the whole wide world, scampers forward to the future all the time, planning, planning, and it revisits the past, sometimes very addictively. (laughs) This happened and I didn't like it. This happened and I didn't like it. Um, Actually, our body never time travels. Like our body is always here in this present moment. So we can use it as an anchor to come home to this moment of our life and sense how we're feeling, sense the kind of sensations and emotions and the thoughts that are moving through and then learn how to take care of it. So it's an energy with those kind of kind of qualities of openness, kindness, and then some insight or wisdom can pop up if we're lucky. And then introducing that more regularly into your life, what are the benefits? Oh, what aren't the benefits? So what I love about this is that... Um, You know, we used to research, the science community used to research, like, why people murder? And nowadays they research, like, why don't more people murder? Because everyone's really annoying at times. And actually, we don't go around murdering people. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what are the ingredients of a happy life? And um, in with practicing mindfulness, with generating our quality of being here, we reduce our naturally untrained mind. So our mind is wildly distracted. Research shows that on an average day, we spend about 47% of the time not in our body. So you're in the shower and you're already thinking about breakfast. You've breakfast and you're already thinking about work. And you're scampering forward all the time through your day. So we miss a lot of our life. And when we're... um, 
there are times when we're with other humans and we're really distracted. We're not really there for them. So we're not there for our loved ones. We're not there for important meetings because we're judging our colleagues. You know, so with mindfulness, it begins to burn away the clouds of delusion that are there all the time. You know, we think of ourselves as really rational, but we're human animals. Like we're so instinctual and we are, we have an untrained mind and we have an untrained heart a lot of the time. So this practice helps us to come in to notice the quality of our thinking and and kind of just to own up to where our presence is at the moment and then to deliberately able to strengthen our heart our heart's ability to take care of whatever's coming up. So whether it's anxiety, irritation, murderous rage, that we aim for our heart to be strong enough to take care of what's arising. And it's literally like a muscle that that with training, just like doing weights training, it just gets easier and easier and easier. So that it really is a practice, like, and you don't really arrive anywhere, like you just practice for your whole life. Um, but what it means is for me now that I can have, you know, something difficult happen that maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago might have knocked me for days and days in terms of my mind kind of festering over it. And actually, if it happens today, one, I can immediately be a friend to myself rather than waggle, waggle. I can't believe you did that. That was so stupid. So I kind of engage these self-care muscles to help me. And then when I notice addictive thinking coming around, then I, then I just go, well, that's just addictive thinking. Like, that's not useful thinking. Now, I've come to these sort of practices later in life, in 30s, 40s now, um, and obviously that comes with more self-awareness. But it is good to start introducing these concepts to children so that it just becomes a part of their life. So is that the reason you wanted to, to write the children's book? Yeah, yeah. For children, you know, just like we want to teach them any form of foundational, you know, how to be a human being. We start really young. We teach them how to eat even before they can hold a spoon and we let them make a big mess for a couple of years. You know, and we we just dive in with how to take care of their bodies, how to eat, how to get dressed. And, you know, this is a foundational practice of how to live. And with children, you know, they are naturally really mindful. Actually, kids are much less distracted by their thoughts unless anxiety has grown quite big um, in them. But on average, like children, if you're colouring, they'll just colour for a while. If you're daydreaming, they'll happily daydream. If, you know, we're walking in nature, they'll happily do that. You know, as adults, we're the ones going, get your coats on, do something else, do something else, because we know the next thing that's coming. Yeah. And any time, you know, I've even seen my own kids, they're crouched down, they're looking at beetles, like they're in it. They're fully in whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. And they are, they're really naturally present. So the practice of mindfulness is always mindfulness of something. So because it's an energy, it's, what, it's the definition that we use, it can be mindfulness of anything, like brushing your teeth and sensing the mintiness or the foaminess, um, planting a seed and feeling the soil around. And sometimes we plant seed with kids and we go, well, you know, you can label one sunflower seed crankiness and you can label one sunflower seed um, kindness. And then you choose what you want to water and see what happens. And they can literally like see it externally in real life going, if I don't water crankiness as much, it just doesn't grow. So then in my own life, what is watering my seeds of worry or my seeds of meanness? And they can just start to notice like, you know, because we're eating all the time through all our senses. So every conversation we listen to, everything we look at with our eyes, you know, all of that's nutrition. 
for these seeds. And sometimes it's a superfood. Sometimes we have a conversation with someone and our heart feels so nourished. And sometimes it's total junk food that leaves us feeling a little bit jittery and a little more alone after we have a conversation. So kids start to notice what they're taking in and what effect it has on them. So, you know, it's called metacognition sometimes, you know, this awareness of being aware of what's coming up in that moment. So is that the concept then of your book, The, the Seeds? Because it's called We Are All Flowers. So is that how you explain it? Because obviously to sit them down and say what you've said to me, <laughs> I think they'd be gone to look at the beetles in the garden again. <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> yeah, so the idea of it, it's um, flower watering is a practice that was developed by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the Zen master who uh, is my teacher. And the idea is that we're all flowers. So it's a very easy concept for children to grasp. And some days we are like a spring flower, like unstoppable, just coming up through cement, like the, the late frost, nothing's able to stop us. And, and some days we're droopy, like some days it's not so easy to be us. So it's really important for us to remember how to refresh ourselves and each other. And so the practice is we think of someone who's easy peasy to love in this moment. It could be an animal or a human, someone who like, it's almost impossible not to smile when you think of them. And then take a moment to sense how it feels when you're close to them and then get really specific and you just choose one thing that you appreciate about them. So it could be like, you know, I'd like to water, so one little girl said, I'd like to water my dad's flowers because he sings me a bedtime song every night. So it's very specific. It's not just my dad, he's great, because what does that mean? And so you you have to really drill down and um, and then what we do is we share it in a circle. So whether it's, you know, I'd like to water my cat Dylan's flowers because he's a very playful cat and, you know, he makes me smile or laugh out loud most days. Um, and then everyone kind of listens and it's very contagious. So we start to notice what other people in our lives are grateful for. And what's amazing is that you kind of get to see the world through their eyes. I remember one little boy who was like really eager to share one day. We run a, I run a children's mindfulness group for the last eight or nine years, which the book came as a, as a way of giving them a resource to teach each other. And I remember this little boy sharing, I want to water my mum's flowers because, and he started this like tortuous explanation about we were walking home and then there was this other lane, which wasn't our normal lane, but she let me go down the normal lane and it was amazing. And she was listening to him going like, I have no memory of that. And, you know, she was very touched that it meant so much to him. And, and it happens all the time that, you know, she might have done something amazing for him that day that, you know, she thought he should be grateful for. And instead, you get this other glimpse of the other person's experience to go, wow, like that really touched them. That's lovely. Well, like, I'd have to say, Orly, you're an incredible flower. <laughs> it has to be said, your energy is absolutely infectious. I think I'd like to spend more and more time with you. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Keep spreading the magic that you're spreading. The book is called We Are All Flowers. It is available now. Orla O'Sullivan, thank you so much for coming in. It was such a pleasure, Claire. Thank you so much. Now, Ian Ward is known as the King of Chemo on social media and he's amassed quite a following. When he was given five years to live, he decided to break the world record for charity fundraising and Ian Ward joins me in studio. Ian, how are you? Very good. Very good indeed. As I've said to you just a moment ago before we began recording, you look in the picture of health. Fit, strong, 
But there's more going on on the inside. You have the most incredible story to tell. Yeah, there's a devil on the inside of me. There's a devil inside of of most people. (laughs) Tell us about yours, though. This started with you deciding to take part in a medical trial. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, like all people, love money but hate working for it. And so uh, when I was a, a student... Uh, I used to go in and do uh, be a human guinea pig, and because it's like they throw quite a bit of money at you for doing very little effort, and so I went in, and one day they they always make sure that the the health and safety is through the roof because they're dealing with human people here and not actual guinea pigs, and so uh, when I went in, they did a brain scan and then uh, an MRI scan, and they said you've got a brain tumor you can't uh, you can't continue on with this trial and that the first thing that came into my mind was not like oh god how am i going to deal with it? it was ah no i'm not going to be able to get all that money i can't go to peru again this is a nightmare and, and had you been in any way feeling unwell you know people say and i just had this niggling feeling my energy had been low or had anything been going on no and that's why my doctor tim jones um he told me you're actually really lucky because Having zero symptoms and me coming in, apparently, uh, like he's a pioneer in brain surgery. You you couldn't find better in the world, and I'm just very lucky that uh, this happened out in London. So the NHS they paid for every, everything, and uh, so he was saying he's only ever had one other patient who's in and around my age that came in, no symptoms, had a brain scan, found the um, the issue, and. It ba- like I reckon if it hadn't happened, I probably would be in either a terrible state right now or dead, one or the other. So how did you manage that news? I mean, firstly, you were like, wow, I can't do the medical trial. What's going to happen next? When did the rest of the reality begin to sink in? Oh, it, like un- not until the, um, the second scan, which took a while because uh, it was going through uh, the peak of COVID. And uh, so the second scan... Uh, which again, you kind of start thinking like, you know, well, maybe if the second scan had been sooner um, due to COVID, that might have ended up being a bad thing if COVID wasn't active. Because, you know, when if it was seen the second time, it might not have been growing as aggressively as it was showing the second time around. So a lot of people are sort of like, oh, my God, would you have not have gotten it uh, sooner if it weren't for COVID? Like, do you not get really annoyed at that? And it's like, well, I mean, it might have been good. It might have been bad because you don't know. Um, but the second what was the wait time? Uh, I think it was six months. Okay. So I, I had my first scan in November, and then I had my uh, second one in uh, in May, um, just uh, like a little bit before my brother's birthday. So I remember being like, ah, I definitely can't tell them now because that's going to ruin a party. So uh, you kept this to yourself for six months. I was going to keep it for like a while. Like I don't think I was going to tell them at all until I was out of the surgery because I knew that like. I knew what they'd be like. They'd be uh, they'd be annoying me. <laughs> they'd be like, "Are you okay? You shouldn't be doing that. Are you sure you should be doing that?" And I was like, "I, I don't want to hear any of that." I'll and be- I always think with any diagnosis or illness or however you want to label it, you go from being Ian to being poor Ian, and nobody really wants that, do they? I mean, it's great to get support, <laughs> no. but no one wants that pitying smile. Oh God, no. So, yeah, and it was like, uh, because it could have affected my ability to speak because I'm right-handed and the left temporal lobe is uh, affects uh, speech, I was like, ah, I probably have to tell these family members uh, ahead of time before the, um, before the surgery because otherwise I might not even be able to tell them properly and that's, 
that's not fair on them. So uh, I did tell them beforehand. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. So I know that afterwards my uh, my speech uh, repaired itself after six days. But they did exactly what I thought they uh, they did. And like irritated me with questions that were like kind of not overbearing but just like oh, you, you go away and leave, leave me alone yeah and of course well intentioned but of the, course yeah the second scan showed what and what information were you told then uh, so the second uh, scan showed aggressive growth and so my doctor was like alright um, you have uh, several options here but if you're in any way sensible you've got one option and that is to uh, go in uh, brain surgery something called a craniotomy which is a uh, the the most dangerous surgery that you can go through so woohoo number one and uh, it's even above like open heart surgery so uh, I went in for that and uh, the other option was don't go in for surgery uh, just go in for chemotherapy or don't go into anything at all and like kind of you know just sort of cross your fingers and hope for the best which is fairly stupid if you ask me and uh, so I was just like all right so suffer through uh, a really unpleasant surgery and then most likely I'll be better off relatively. And my surgeon was like, yeah, absolutely. And again, if you're going in for surgery, you have another choice, which is uh, while we're there with a buzzsaw, uh, cranking open your your head so we can get the ice cream scoop and scoop the uh, the brain out. Before we get to that, we need to, um, we could give you the option of going under um, just for the, the surgical part of actually getting access to the brain. And I was like, okay, where's the butt? And it's like, well, if we put you under, um, you'll come back groggier, like you're a bit drunk. And so it will slow your ability to speak down, which is the whole purpose of doing the um, the surgery in the first time. It's like, ah, well, you, you shouldn't have even mentioned that because obviously I'll, I, I, won't, I don't want that. There's no point in like doing it sort of a, a half measure for it. And then, um, so yeah, that was, that was uh, unpleasant, but it was oddly enough more unpleasant because... Um, I had to be on my side and my hips cramped up really bad. That was the that was the hardest part of it, I'd say. And how long were you in this surgery for? Four hours. And obviously you get some sort of sedation. So how conscious are you of what's going on? Oh, you don't get any sedation whatsoever. You get the local anaesthetic to uh, make sure that you uh, don't feel the actual well, surgical incision. But you still like... The, the most unpleasant part about it is the sound because it's not like, uh, I don't know what you would imagine that it's very delicate. They get a buzzsaw out. It's like it's, you know, Woody's DIY and they just like get right in there so they have access to your mush. So it seems like you've just been hit by wave and wave and wave of really tough stuff to take on. Not only them discovering it, but how they were going to get it out you're talking about it now. Obviously, we're in a kind of a, an interview setup, and it, it's a it's a little bit of time on. But how were you handling it on a on an emotional level? Um, fairly easy going. The um, the only time where it was annoying me was uh, I normally me and all my mates we play our articulate over Christmas, and. Uh, I didn't do well. Normally I do okay. I think me and my friend came in last place. We were so annoyed. So annoyed. Because you just had brain surgery. No, no, no. This was this was in between the November and the second scan. And then that was the first, I think the first and only time where I was looking back and being like, oh my God, that's that tumor. 
that's that tumour messing around me. Oh, I'm not going to be as uh, sharp linguistically anymore. Oh, this is so annoying. And then um, I woke up the next morning and I sobered up and I realised, nah, that was just a, a day off. <laughs> so the surgery was was a success, was it? What did you t- get told after it? Um, yeah, so I would think in terms of... Um, so the surgery, they try to take as much of the tumour as possible out without damaging the vital parts of the, or the functional parts of the brain. And I always use the metaphor that uh, the brain is very similar to um, a big house with lots of small rooms. Each room has uh, furniture in it that's used for a practical thing, so kitchen, cooking, uh, office, work, that sort of thing. And um, so what they try to do is they try to remove as much of the space of the room as possible while not damaging the uh, the furniture. And then what your brain naturally does, the younger you are, the more it does this, but uh, it moves the furniture into spare space in the other rooms, which is incredible. And so that's what the recovery is for... Um, for a brain, it's called something uh, plasticity, and it's so dramatic that uh, apparently, if a baby has a stroke, full-on stroke that would you know kill a person in their uh, you know mid sixties, uh, it's often that the parents do not notice it, and not because they're bad parents, just because they think the baby has a bit of a flu or a bit of a cold, and then it will the baby will recover, and they only find out about this later in life when they have brain scans and the doctors are able to look and be like, this part of your brain isn't active but you're still like able to work the parts of the brain that are normally in this place. And then they backtrack and they sort of act like the detective and they try to find out what caused this. And then they can hear like, oh yeah, did you have a flu when you were a baby? I did, yeah. Well, you actually had a stroke. So it's incredible. The brain is an incredible organ. And did you know as much about it as you do now? Oh God, no. <laughs> Only through personal experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what were you told then after that? Um, so we came in the uh, six days, I think it was a week, but six days afterwards, I had stopped um, having issues with uh, with my speech. So when uh, I was going into the uh, the second meeting, oh, I don't know what it was, fourth meeting at this stage, but they had the prognosis of uh, analysing the actual uh, brain tumour that they had removed because now they can actually get their hands on it, semi literally <laughs> and um they were then said okay yeah so this is serious this is we've confirmed it now it definitely is uh, cancerous you didn't have red dots on your scan but uh so we weren't certain but this is 100% uh, a cancerous tumor stage 3 and then started going through the talks of uh, the treatment and that sort of thing and they never it's hollywood they never say uh you've got x amount of years to live um Unless it's like, you know, A&E and someone's been shot in the heart and it's like, this is their last moments. There's no recovery from this. Um, so, but we asked and asked and asked and asked, do you have any kind of a ballpark? And they were like, ah, oh, well, I mean, statistically, which is, you know, not really accurate. It's as accurate as can be. People that come in in this scenario are, uh, they live for about uh, five years on average, but you have to factor in the fact that you are way out of the stats because you came in at 30 with no symptoms. The other people who are involved in this sort of, um, uh, the statistics are double your age because that's the age that people go in and get random um, MRIs. It's when they are getting to the retirement age and they're like, I better do a health check. But like, you know, 
you're running around doing whatever you want at the age of 30 and so it doesn't come into your mind to like focus on your health unless you're a hypochondriac. And how do you feel about all this? Do you feel you were lucky that you went in for that MRI? Oh yeah, 100%. 100%. If anything, um, it sounds like I'm absolutely insane and like you could probably blame it on the brain tumour itself, but it has given me so much clarity in my life that uh, I wake up every day and I have like a, a really strong purpose to do. And so every little thing that I do... Um, it, it has a lot of meaning to it. Whereas before, I liked my job. My job was the same sort of thing. It was uh, teaching fitness classes. Um, but now it's that with like a whole load of extra um, sort of momentum to it. So it's brilliant. Because I do ponder on this a good bit because we're all dying and none of us really know when. And is it a good thing or a bad thing to have some sort of a a time limit on it. Do you have a sort of a, a ticking clock or are you thinking you're going to defy the, the odds because that's what the doctors told you? These are only stats and they're not 100% certain. Yeah, and also I get absolutely like blasted with everybody's uh, positive story about like, oh, so-and-so, uh, they got through their cancer by taking this, 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 this and this and, uh, you know, putting yourself on an outrageously healthy diet. Even if it doesn't work, probably will still make the quality of your life in some ways better. So it's like, give it a go. You know, it's not a, it's not the worst thing in the world to try. But then how different do you want your, your life to be? Do you want to be having the fun and the joy and not thinking about beating cancer every day? Or do you want to be fully focused on trying to beat cancer every day? Yeah, it is definitely a, a balancing act. And I keep sort of thinking it in my head where it's like, ah, yeah, I'll sort it out tomorrow. It's like, it's definitely something that I'm highly aware of. But um, ah, you know, I'm not a I'm not a, a disciplined warrior. I'm not like a, a David Goggins character that can just sort of uh, you know fall back on every bit of super powered willpower. So I know it's good for me, but it's still so much fun to live life and such an important part of health and wellness. I mean, it really is um, to have joy, to have fun, to have all of that in your life. It's so important. I'm just really bowled over by your attitude to life and. It's really hard to understand or not understand because it I, I, you, you've explained it really well, but why you're not in the corner sobbing, thinking, why me? H- how have you navigated to, to be where you are now and, and choose this path instead? Uh, well, for one, I kind of, uh, whenever I would watch like historical um, films, like World War II films, and I'd like, I'd always be looking at the uh, the characters in it and like the realistic ones like Saving Private Ryan or whatever where everyone isn't just like you know the superhero and I'd look at it and be like I wonder where I would be in that situation would I be the guy who's able to maintain his cool would I be like the guy who's you know uh, underneath the bunker how often would I like run away and pretend like I, I ran to the front of the, the battle but I didn't really I was hiding behind a tree like I, I'm curious about it and I sort of saw this opportunity as um, well this situation as an opportunity to be like alright well now you're in this is um, something that is feared and awful and how are you going to handle it and I kind of took the advice of um, uh, Joe Rogan if you like him or hate him he does have some great little uh, quotations for life and his one was uh, imagine yourself as the protagonist in your own film and I was like, all right, well, all right, 
this is the moment now. So this is something bad coming at me. This is the thing that like, you know, what was it? Act two of a uh, of a film or a, of a story where it's like the um, the conflict and how are you going to do with this conflict? What are you going to do? Are you going to try and, you know, sit around, not do anything about it? Or are you going to take advantage of the fact that you will, whether you want it or not, get a lot of pity and you can kind of twist that around and you can uh, you can use it to an advantage. And I feel like that's worked out really well for me so far. I love the warrior path you have chosen. Um, what or when did the idea come to you that you were going to get really vocal about this? And you've documented your story on social media at the King of Chemo and you're looking to break some world records around fundraising. When did that become a part of the plan? Uh, so it was after the prognosis, like 24 hours, but the idea had been uh, floating around for a while because I had started up a, a YouTube channel um, uh, prior to all of this. And that was just, um, I had been thinking about doing it for a while uh, just to turn me playing video games into uh, something productive rather than just a complete and utter waste of time. And uh, so when I was like, I've got to go in for uh, brain surgery after the second scan, it was like, okay, there'll be an elephant in the room with this, uh, no matter what, it, whether it be good or bad, uh, I'll have a giant scar, might be have some hair loss, so I should, I need to be able to address this. And it's like, hmm, what am I going to say? Oh, well, I could do, um, I'm not a particularly good um, gamer, but people do things called speed runs, which is how fast can they finish the game? And they often make events um, of them where like a lot of people are f- physically in the room watching the same person and then other people are donating live during the speed run and they often uh, get them to uh, try to do things in the game itself so uh, I think um, a simple one is uh, there's a game called Metal Gear Solid and so they keep getting the player someone donates and they get them to say something from the game which is like snake snake and so they get them to say that. So I was like, I'll do something like that and uh, call it headshots for head cancer because I'm not a particularly good gamer. So every time I get it, it'll be like, yes, you actually did it. Okay. Everybody donate a euro, something really small that people can kind of get behind. And then once I got my prognosis, that was sort of, uh, all right, well, this has been cranked up. So you crank it up as well. Crank up, like maybe make it the focus of everything because if you're not going to be on the earth for a lot longer. There's no point in being like, hey, so I'm going to die in five years, maybe. Um, so every time I shoot someone in the head on a video game, uh, donate one dollar, please. Like, it's like, doesn't really fit the, the gravitas of the situation. So I was like, all right, let's, uh, let's look up what the world record is for um, charity for running a marathon. And that was something that I had done before. I'd done the Dublin Marathon, um, I think about a decade ago now a little bit more, 11 years ago. And so I knew how to do that. So it's within my sort of realm of experience. So I was like, all right, I'll try that. And then I also knew that you can uh, very easily get a world record for running a marathon by just dressing as anything. So, um, and it's so specific. You can really, if you have never run a marathon in your life, you could still get a world record very easily by just picking something to dress as. So as an example, you can go as a human organ, and that used to be a thing, but now they've even got it down to the individual organs. So you can run and be the fastest person dressed as a kidney and get a, uh, a Guinness World Record for that. Did you go as a brain? 
Uh, no, but that was something that I looked up. I can't remember. I think going as a brain was actually quite fast. So I was like, all right, I won't do that one. <laughs> but I looked into all sorts of things and like... Um, uh, running as a king is surprisingly uh, accessible so it's like oh I'll do that because obviously the king of chemo and there's also like uh, my mom's an O'Brien so descendant allegedly from Brian Baru high king of Ireland um, so there's that and there was a couple of other ones that it uh, it, it fit into um, one that I really want to try and have a go at is because uh, uh, if I grow my beard out a little bit uh, I have quite Jesus hair and I've gone as Halloween as Jesus before, so I was like, I could do that. And if anything, who is going to encourage more donations than someone going as as Jesus? The Lord himself. Exactly. So I'm sure, particularly with the American market, I imagine they'd throw the money at doing that, especially if it was done really fast. And um, so what I chose was the uh, a video game character because I'd already been playing uh, video games. And I suppose my channel is not really about video games uh, as much anymore at all, but... It's it's what I set as my goal, and so I'll stick with it. You're just having fun with this. I love it's that. Loads of fun. Like this is quite a, a a dark and difficult thing that happened, but you've just flipped it. You're you're having fun. Yeah, every single time someone comes in and sort of uh, gets a part of my um, sponsorship or something like that or an association. Uh, I always sort of come in because I mean, like, I I suppose I am a bit famous now. Like, it's I, while I was walking down the road, someone beeped their uh, their car while I was actually sending a message to someone who's my sponsor. I was talking to Jim Jack, and it was just like this sounds so good that someone was like, "Oh, hey, the king of chemo," and I was like, "Cheers, lad, thank you." <laughs> anyway, uh, Hannah, I need to do this, 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 and this in the next event that we have. And uh, so obviously from her perspective, that sounds so like, geez, this guy really is like, you know. uh, Stopping traffic. Yeah, white hot. (laughs) So yeah, we need to, whatever his suggestion is, is probably going to be something wise to go through with it. And uh, it just seems to be like a a knock on effect. Like I'm doing this thing called the uh, the Battle Cancer. Uh, They're like uh, CrossFit games. And... um, Originally, I got in touch with them and I was like, hey, um, would it be possible I'm this guy? And this was before I, I like I had a half million followers. So it was um, before it went super viral. And I asked them, would I be able to get like a free pass to do it? And now since going viral, the, the word has gotten up to the person who's the head, um, the, the owner of all the, the Battle Cancer games. And now he's in talks with me and it's like, he wants me to do way more events. And he's like, "What would you be okay with doing more events? And I was like, this, I asked you if I could do it in the first place. Like, this is brilliant. And the same thing with Brewdog. I went in and I, like, the first time I went to the Dublin site, I went in and I was just chancing my arm to see, like, I wonder will I be able to get, like, free beer and food in here? And then not only that, but they, like, they put me in this this very T-shirt that I'm sitting in and they were like, oh, um, so what are you actually doing with, uh, with Brewdog? Have you sorted out what how you're going to uh, do a charity thing? And I just said it as a suggestion, like, oh, well, we were um, mirandering around the idea of doing a pub quiz. And then the people in um, the Dublin site were, oh, that's perfect, because we need people to do a bu- Dublin quiz. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> They're basically just like suggesting to me as if I'm doing them a favor. But in my mind, I'm like, this is exactly like, this is better than I was hoping for. So, yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah, 2nd of August, pub quiz in um, Brewdog down in uh, Dublin Keys. But I'm not surprised. I've spent, what, 20, 30 minutes in your company and I want on the train as well. Your energy <laughs> is absolutely infectious. It's what you're putting out there is coming 
back to you tenfold and it's building with momentum. So where are we at with the with the tumour? Are they just sort of leaving you to see what happens and you go in for scans? Are you still having to receive treatment? Where's all that with with all this good stuff that you're building? Yeah, exactly what uh, you just said. And uh, as you could probably have a guess, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a competitive person. So every time that I hear the results of the brain, uh, the brain tumour growth are no growth, which is realistically the best thing that you can hope for. When I hear it, I'm like, that, that, that's a draw of a game. That's a draw of a final. That's not a, that's not a victory. That's not a loss. And um, I have attempted um, sort of the obscure cures before. So again, every time I hear no growth, I don't see it as a, a particularly good thing. Mammy and daddy certainly do. They're they're always very pleased with that. But uh, I'm always like, all right, next time I need to try and go for a longer, uh, longer fast. So what, you're looking to blast it out of there altogether? Yep, starve it to death. And you chose not to take chemo, is that right? Oh, no, 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 no. I absolutely did, yeah. No, I'm not I'm not going to try and uh, do it all uh, entirely on a holistic approach. Like, while I feel like it's uh, it's wise to try uh, that, it's still like, you know, the a gold standard of medical care is chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy. So, like, you know... You can't, I know it sounds like a silly statement, but you can't um, disrespect cancer. So, yeah, yeah. No so you're taking the arm. medical advice, but you're also keeping your eye out for what else you yes, can be doing. Yes. Including a strong, wrought iron, positive mental attitude. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of people that are saying the same sort of thing where, uh, uh, there's the placebo effect is not something that is uh, like uh, even though it is a fake thing it still is uh, medically proven to work which is uh, it comes down to the power of the mind so I am again extremely lucky that I have never had um, uh, mental health uh, problems in my life uh, which is not the same for quite a lot of uh, other people that have been in my life. So uh, even though I am raising money for uh, cancer research, because obviously it it makes the most sense, seeing as how I'm basically the the sort of the the front man for that. But uh, I still tried to do quite a lot of stuff for um, mental health as well. In November uh, got in touch with me, and uh, they want me to do something with them at the uh, just after the. Uh, Brewdog Pub Quiz, which is like the fourth to the sixth of um, August. It's it's not an event. It's uh, it's more of a, a, a like a, a personal thing, and it's going to be recorded. And they said we have uh, November. They started off as prostate cancer and testicular cancer, and now they were saying, but we've also increased it now to um, mental health because it is uh, the the suicide rate for um, for males is just like going through the roof. And so I said, well, I've actually experienced uh, one of my friends who uh, took his own life many years ago. So uh, I'd actually want to focus exclusively on the mental health side of things because, you know, the testicular and prostate cancer, if anyone is like aware of who I am, I'll kind of I'll carry that uh, that fundraising along with me. And then it is very sort of in my mind to make sure that this is not the only thing that I'm trying to raise awareness for. Well, however it happened or why it happened that you went in for that MRI and found this and got put on this path, there's a real sense that you're doing what it is you're you're meant to be doing. You seem to be in a real flow state and I hope you get to continue that. As I said, oh yeah, I, it, it's infectious um, what you're doing and inspiring. And I won't forget this conversation. I wish you 
100% all the best and look forward to you coming back here to tell me yeah. that there has been an eradication of the tumour and that you're in full health. People can find out more at curecancerordietrying.com. The King of Chemo, Ian Ward, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.